Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 75. The Argument from Reason on the Council of Trent. Hey everyone, David here. A couple of months ago, I was invited onto the Council of Trent to talk about one of Lewis's arguments that he presents in Miracles. It's called The Argument from Reason. It's mainly an argument against naturalism, uh, but it can be used as an argument for the existence of God. Anyway, the host of the Council of Trent, Trent Horn, he was in town, he was in San Diego. So one day I headed over to his office and we sat down, we drank some chocolate milk, and we talked about C.S. Lewis and the argument from reason. Enjoy. Welcome to the Council of Trend podcast, a production of Catholic Answers. Welcome to the Council of Trent podcast. I'm your host, Catholic Answers apologist and speaker, Trent Horn. We have another special in-studio episode today, recording here at Catholic Answers Studios here at 2020 Gillespie down in San Diego. Always fun to be able to stop by, and fun to have guests who do other podcasts who live here in the San Diego area be able to join us. Today joining me is Mr. David Bates. He is the host of Pints with Jack. You might have heard of Pints with Aquinas, that podcast out there. But if you haven't heard of it, you need to check out Pints with Jack. It's a wonderful podcast dedicated to C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is someone, I remember when I was in my conversion experience, David, I think for a lot of people, some, one of the first authors they read in their conversion to Christianity is C.S. Lewis, and his words still have forceful resonance, even now it's been about 80 years since he he wrote some of his works like Mere Christianity. And so I thought today would be fun to have you come in, and I wanted to talk about one of Lewis's works that people aren't as familiar with. Hmm. So most people know, know C.S. Lewis probably from the Chronicles of Narnia. So I think that's probably his most famous work. That was how I was first introduced to him, and that's how most people are. Yeah, so they know the Chronicles of Narnia, and my kids have thoroughly enjoyed listening to those on audiobook. Uh, the audiobook versions have really great narrators. Uh, my son was listening to The Last Battle, which is the final entry in the Narnia series, uh, at least chronologically, according to the story. Uh, and I believe it's narrated uh, by Sir Patrick Stewart. They have some really great act- voice actors doing that. Oh, it's 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 stupendous to hear him uh, uh, do Aslan, and it, it's wonderful. And then also, of course, Mere Christianity, he had, uh, many other books, and other people are in the Catholic sphere are probably familiar with Surprised by uh, Joy, uh, Problem of Pain. Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters. Uh, but one I think a lot of people are not as familiar with because, it, frankly, it's a it's a denser book and really shows off Lewis the philosopher, mm. and that would be his book Miracles. So that's what I wanted to talk about today on the show. And I was a little nervous when you first suggested it for lots of those reasons. It's a book with which I'm not as familiar. I've probably read Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Screwtip Letters. I've probably read each of them at least 15 times each. I've only read Miracles once, and as you say, Lewis goes into deeper waters. It's slightly headier material. He does. And I'm not trained in philosophy, so I think this is going to be great, because oh. you are, and you can correct all of my misunderstandings. <laughs> oh, no. When I, when I looked over the notes you sent me, uh, saying, you know, at, at first, we had a bit of a miscommunication before coming on here. I thought we would record a Pints with Jack episode, and so you wrote out all this stuff. I thought, oh, man, I don't have to do anything for this interview. <laughs> but uh, no, it'll be, it'll be fun to talk about. And I think it's important, because Lewis's other works tackle a lot of... Uh, 
what's the word I would be searching here for? The, the common man's objections to theology. Mm-hmm. Mere Christianity were radio addresses. Uh, but here in Miracles, he goes to the root, which is also the root of many people's objections to Christianity in general. I, I've noticed this in my engagement with skeptics. I think this happened a lot in my debate with Matt Dillahunty. Mm-hmm. I believe it was mere Christianity. I can't remember the citation right off my head. But Lewis says that the modern man's objection to Christianity is not necessarily that it's supernatural, but that it's ancient. Yeah. It takes place in a, a shrouded, misty world of, of uh, nights and uh, you know, when you go back in time, it's an unreal realm, sort of, and people just can't wrap their heads, not just around that it's, one, that it happened a long time ago, mm-hmm. but then, two, that it's a miraculous thing that happened a long time ago. And for a lot of people, it's a one-two punch that they, that miracles are hard enough and they're a long time ago. So in Miracles, he's really trying to set out to show to the modern man uh, not just that miracles are something that we should believe in, but that kind of like our existence itself is kind of an inexplicable miracle that requires explanation. Yes, he goes to the roots of the presuppositions of those problems. So one of them being chronological snobbery. If it's old, it's out of date. And also, we can't speak about miracles because miracles don't happen. That right. starts as your presupposition from which you then depart. Right. Well, let's jump into the book. Before we do, you brought me a special gift I'm grateful for. We should cheers and do a cheers. toast to. Cheers. You brought me my special drink I like, <laughs> chocolate milk in a glass. I tried to buy it the other day and they were out. Other people are in on the secret. Well, you see, I just want you to associate other things with California other than just potholes and high taxes. So I, I want you to think whenever you come back to San Diego, you get chocolate milk. So you might do it more often. Well, I'll have to, I'll give it some thought. One of these days, I'm going to do my free-for-all Friday on uh, my chocolate milk connoisseur. I, I've ranked all the brands, so we will, <laughs> we'll see that for, or even another bonus episode. Well, let's talk about Miracles. So Miracles book Lewis wrote in 1947, and then he released a revised edition mm-hmm. in 1960. The full title is Miracles, A Preliminary Study. So what's kind of the, the overarching thesis and some of the arguments that Lewis puts forth in this book? So as I said earlier, he goes to your presuppositions, and he says that really before you can start looking at miracle claims, you have to decide as best you can, can miracles actually even happen right. in principle? Because <clears throat> if you decide they can't, that's going to influence everything else that comes afterwards. You see this a lot in uh, scripture studies where you have non-believing biblical scholars right. will date books because they contain prophecies of things that happened. So if you start with the point of view that prophecy can't happen because spirituality, uh, supernatural uh, events don't happen, you then have to date the book after the event that it's claiming that, to prophesy. That is, to me, one of the most boneheaded things that New Testament scholars do, in particular when they say, well, the Synoptic Gospels, at least Matthew and Luke, had to have been written after 70 AD because they described Jesus predicting the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which happened in 70. To which I say, well, once again, if miraculous, if prophecy is real, if miracles are real, he could do that. But also, number two, even if they weren't, it, it's not that grand of a, of a conclusion to say that, you know, maybe the Romans were always out to get us and there's always a war or conflict every few decades are going to come in and wreck the place. I mean, that's something everybody was worried about. It's rather like predicting that there'll be a, a, a conflict in the Middle East. Give it, give it enough time, give it's it going to happen. Give it enough time, it will happen. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so in Miracles, uh, Lewis, you know, he's saying, well, he, miracles happen, 
But in order to defend the claim that miracles can happen and we can believe in them, he has to juxtapose two camps, Mm -hmm. the naturalists and the supernaturalists. Because if you are a naturalist, right, like you said about presuppositions, miracles are already off the table. To investigate a miracle if you're committed to naturalism is the same as a mathematician trying to find a square circle. You don't, I don't even have to bother. I know it's not there. And it's based around the idea that nature is a closed system. Right. Interlocking, it's all just cause and effect. That's all there is. Whereas a supernaturalist believes that there can be interference by a supernatural entity. In right. Christianity, we call it God. And that goes beyond our natural laws, how they would normally operate. Right. So I think some people have mistakenly defined miracles to say, oh, well, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And so miracles can happen because you can't break the laws of nature. I think this is mistaken because the laws of nature are not things. Mm. It's not like gravity goes around and you're wearing a hat and a badge and it's like, hey, stop floating. Stop stop floating up there. You got to get down. The laws of nature just describe how things naturally tend to act. Mm -hmm. And so what's amazing is we notice all this uniformity. And yet if if you are a naturalist, you just have to say, well, the uniformity is there for some reason. Yeah. And it just always is there and it's uniform and universal. So these miracles don't happen. But if there is an entity that is not bound by nature itself, it can intervene. Mm. Well, also, I think that another problem that comes up is people think when we talk about a miracle being God's intervention, I I'm concerned that some people treat it as like, you know, well, the universe is here. I'm holding this pen out here and God's out here and it's just floating there doing its thing. He's like, well, better become incarnate. There we go. You know, better uh, miraculously help Dave get that uh, promotion, which is not a miracle. That's Providence. (laughs) But the universe isn't floating out here. Mm. God is sustaining all of it. So it's not like he kind of hops in every 2,000 years. He's always here, but he makes his presence known by, you know, superseding the laws. Mm. Is a way to, I think is a good way to look at it. Uh, absolutely. It, I think it, it relates to a, a deistic idea that has infiltrated all, all aspects of our lives, that we think of God as abstract away and out there and occasionally stops by to see how we're doing. Right. The... Uh, the what was it? It was either Lewis or I think it was J.I. Packard. Someone described God as an absentee landlord, mm-hmm. basically. And it's like, oh, let's check in to make sure everybody's all right. The super <laughs> is here to do his necessary maintenance. Before we talk, though, about – well, I want to talk about his primary – it's interesting in Miracles. He, he talks about they're rational, but he's got to get off the ground floor saying that, well, we can't just be shackled to naturalism. So he makes a, a primary argument against naturalism itself that we'll get to here shortly. But I want to talk about some of the, the great things that are, that are in the book. Uh, there's a part where he addresses an objection. I love reading in older authors. I see objections that I hear all the time now. It shows they're right, on, they're right on the ball. So one would be people say, well, if God existed, why isn't it obvious? Why isn't it just obvious I look around like, oh, yeah, of course God exists. It should just be an obvious thing. And Lewis, in a very condensed way, says... Well, sometimes there are truths that are so obvious we miss them. Like, for example, if I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you right now, one of those truths is I'm looking at you with eyeballs. But I I rarely think about the fact that I have eyeballs until I start to stop and think, how am I able to see you? Or Lewis used the example that if I'm looking at a garden, I'm looking through a window pane. And it's obvious I'm looking through a window pane, but I don't notice it until I stop to think, oh. 
or grammar is another example he gave. Like we we speak, and if someone asks you to actually explicate grammar, you're like, how do I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've, you've, you quickly look past it because you're using it every day. Another example he gives in Mere Christianity to make a different point, but a, a fish doesn't notice that it's wet because <laughs> it's, it's in the water the entire time. How many times during a day do you actually think about your breathing? Right. Unless you're a yogi, not very often. Right. Uh, well, actually... Um, I wanted to I wanted to jump right off that into the argument from reason. Let's put a pin in that because that idea of obvious things pointing back to God will be useful. Another one here is Lewis says, uh, if anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we have been the victims of an illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we always shall say. So it's not about saying, okay, here's enough evidence to believe in this miracle. Because I, I watched Matt Dillahunty's reply to my debate. He did a little recap of his own. Mm-hmm. And Matt seemed to take it, Mike Lacona debated him as well, and, and Dillahunty seemed to express that it was not fair in a debate about a resurrection to start putting out arguments for God. Like, well, you, you don't need to bring God into this, just prove that this event happened. Well, for me, if God doesn't exist, you're always going to go to some other alternative explanation. Mm-hmm. It's quite fair for me to say there's good evidence for the causal entity I'm proposing. And Lewis seems to have that on here, that if, if you if you are locked in naturalism, it's a fool's game to try to argue for miracles. And it's not even just simply reading about evidence or hearing about evidence. He even says our own senses. When you boil it down, if you encounter the miraculous, you're going to be receiving that through your senses. And we know that our senses aren't infallible. Right. We can be tricked. It could be an illusion. It could exactly. be a hoax. It could be... I saw David Copperfield levitate a car. I knew that my senses were lying to me, that things were not as they were, because I know that he isn't a supernatural being like God that can right. do these things. So I naturally start looking for other options. And I'm pretty sure it was a hollowed out car. I think that's what it was. Well, well that's helpful because some <laughs> atheists will say, why doesn't God come and do a miracle right now in front of us? Well, if you don't believe it's God, you could believe all kinds of other explanations. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke once said that advanced technology would be practically indistinguishable from magic. It's the Thor argument. Yeah, basically, yeah, if, if Thor comes down, you know, oh, well, you know, you're, you're misattributing the, the cause there. <laughs> so, uh, it, but, but I just yeah. want to say that yeah, yeah. Uh, I think of Matt Dillahunty when I read that section, because I've, I've listened to a lot of his debates, and honestly, I don't know what could convince him. No, nothing? He seems to have a closed system where no evidence is even admissible, that even if you saw the most miraculous thing, he would assume it was something else like a brain aneurysm or, right. or, or some kind of illusion. And at that point, you're stuck. Right, because he's assuming that it's just an observational thing to lead to the supernatural. But if you're already presuming naturalism, then that doesn't work. The other point we're making about things being obvious, like we see the garden through the window pane, we take the window pane for granted. The fact that we are reasoning about whether God exists, the fact that we're saying, well, are we justified in believing in miracles? Are you justified in believing in God? The fact that we are able to use reason. That's what motivates Lewis and miracles to put forward what he calls the cardinal difficulty with naturalism. And so that would be chapter three in miracles where he puts forward the argument from reason. So in a nutshell, and there's lots of, actually there's multiple (laughs) arguments from reason. What's the gist of the argument from reason? Yes. I've heard this explained in lots of different ways with different uh, aspects being emphasized, but I would put it like this. We have thoughts and we have beliefs, and we reason to those beliefs. 
And if you adopt the worldview of naturalism, all of those things, all that entire process must be reducible to natural processes in your brain. Right. And your brain itself, itself, is a product of blind, raw, natural forces. And so then the question is, if that is the case, why would I trust my brain to help me arrive at beliefs which are true? Right. On what basis? Because it does seem to rather undermine lots of things, like meaning, morality, free will, but also my cognitive faculties, my ability to reason. Why, why should I expect my brain to give me a true understanding of the world out, outside of my body? Right. And Lewis points out that when we criticize other people for believing things, sometimes we try to say, oh, well, that guy only believes in it because he has a bias or he believes in it because it makes him feel good to know that it's true. And we think that we've shown someone isn't justified if they believe something for non-rational or, or irrational means. And the distinction that will be important as we discuss his argument that we try to point out, oh, if we can show the guy only believes this for non-rational reasons, you know, his, his parents told him this, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, he feel, it makes him feel good when he believes this. We'd say, well, that's not, a, that's not a good reason to believe something. But Lewis points out, but wait, if naturalism is true, then the only reason we believe things, you know, if you're saying like, oh, well, I believe X because when I say these words to myself, it gives me a warm feeling in my tummy. Uh, If I believe X because, you know, if if the way my molecules in my stomach go, it's like that's not a reliable means for truth. If the molecules in my brain are also shifting and rearranging just as haphazardly, why would I I trust them? Uh, In the book, so this argument does predate Lewis. He quotes uh, J.B.S. Haldane, who is also an atheist, actually, Mm -hmm. who said... If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. So the idea here is that if my belief, if, so this argument from reason seems to be, it's not an argument for God per se, it's just an argument that naturalism isn't true. Naturalism doesn't provide enough material it doesn't provide enough explanatory uh, power, oh, and if we if we can't if we can't get the answer from nature, then we have to look at something beyond nature, supernature. Right, and so the, the idea here is that we cannot. If naturalism leads to faulty reasoning, then I can't trust anything I reason from it, uh, even the claim that naturalism is true. Mm. And so instead, we have to look somewhat beyond that. So that was the argument. That was his primary argument. The argument for reason in. Um, uh, in miracles, what's interesting about and this it's also been developed more as good arguments are they get developed over time. Maybe at the end of our talk, we'll talk about modern defenders of this argument. Uh, so he, he's he's put this together, but what's interesting about it is it's part of a urban legend that's kind of grown up around C.S. Lewis, <laughs> and there's a lot of urban legends related to C.S. Lewis. And one of them, the legend kind of goes like this. So Lewis, you know, he's a literary guy. He's, you know, he's, he understands Western culture. He's good at writing fiction. And he's good at talking to the common man. But he ain't no philosopher. Mm-hmm. And Lewis in Miracles tries to do philosophy. And then he goes to the big boys and the big girls. And he gets his butt kicked. He gets his, his hat handed to him by a Catholic philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe. 
who said, and the myth goes like this, that Anscombe eviscerated Lewis's argument from reason, and he went back with his tail between his legs, and he just ended up writing children's literature after that and stopped doing apologetics and realized he was a fraud and phony. That's, and there's a, a lot of intelligent people, even Lewis biographers, yep. who, who buy into this myth. And it's, and it's I mean, there's some true, there are, he, he did have the criticism from Anscombe, but then it's completely blown out of proportion. Absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of funny. People just don't go to the primary sources. It, it's much like the, the myth that Tolkien hated Narnia. Uh, it, it, it grows each time in its retelling, particularly as biographers who don't do their homework retell the story, adding their own flourish to in it. In Lord of the Rings, the original <laughs> name of Sauron was C.S. Sauron. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. And, and in this particular incident... It's, it's retelled as a battle of the sexes, that you have this stodgy English professor thinking he can do philosophy, and he gets eviscerated uh, and destroyed, and by a woman, no less, gasp, you know, clutch, he, clutch your pearls. Right. And people always skip over the fact that she was a Catholic, she was a mother of seven, uh, that all of this took place at the Oxford Socratic Club, which Lewis himself helped found. Right. And the idea that he either didn't didn't do any more apologetics. That's just flatly false because mere Christianity comes out after this as well as a number of other theological works. And Lewis had been writing fiction since long before this. And even his fiction, I would actually argue, is some of his most powerful apologetic. Right. And then, but the biggest thing here is that he did, he did not abandon the argument. He mm -hmm. revised it and released a second edition. And actually, the miracles I have is the second edition. I'd love to track down. A, I'm sure someone has a first edition or at least the original. It's uh, available online. Yeah, you can get the, you can, to compare his original argument in miracles, the cardinal difficulties of naturalism with the revision because Anscombe, and that's what good philosophers do. You put out an argument, your peers say, and this doesn't quite work. And then you strengthen it and you move forward. And so Anscombe put out good objections to it to make it stronger. So, for example, one of them, in Lewis's original uh, formulation of the argument from reason, he tried to, it was almost like kind of what Victor Reppert calls a skeptical threat argument, that Lewis tries to argue, kind of like presuppositionalists do today, that if reason, if, if our reasoning is from motion of atoms in our brains— then we could never know if we're ever validly reasoning at all. We could we could have no idea where any kind of reasoning is valid. And a lot of people might think, well, that doesn't seem right. It feels like we can do trial and error and we can compare things. And sometimes we do get it right. And so Anscombe brought up this objection. And so Lewis reformulates the argument. Well, it's not so much that we can't know if we're reasoning. We do know we have valid reasoning. How are we able to do that? How can we ground that? Right. How do we ground it? How do we make it the case? So it's not, it would be like someone saying that if God doesn't exist, we would have no idea what's good or evil. Mm -hmm. That would be a bad argument. We, we do have an intuitive understanding <laughs> of good and evil. People can figure it out if they don't know God. A better argument is, well, what, what objectively makes things good or evil? And that, so the same thing with the, the argument for morality. I'm trying to think what are some... Uh, well, Anscombe's other criticism... Uh, of the argument is interesting. She tries to say, well, even, well, Lewis's argument is basically this, that if a belief, if a belief you have can be explained uh, purely with non-rational causes, if you can explain you have a belief because of these synaptic connections in your brain, and I can explain it all the physical causes, therefore it's not warranted. Yeah. 
is and so Anscombe says, well, that's not necessarily true because you could have all of the reasons that somebody uh, believes something. You you could have the physical description of why they believe something they do, but if they also have reasons concurrent with that, you could say, you know, why I'm mad. You know, it's like David, I'm mad at you because. Uh, I didn't eat lunch this morning, and the chocolate milk is actually lactose free, and I can taste the difference. And I, 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 I told you, I can taste the difference. Sorry, uh, it's, it's all good. And I, uh, and I have this, this, and that, and this, and that. Even if I have that completely um, understood, if I also say comprehend reasons along with it, then it, then it could be rational. It, to go back to the the genetic fallacy, which we spoke about a little mm-hmm. bit earlier, the idea that just because you were born in part of the world because your parents told you. My parents told me the world was round. Right. But I also believe that because I've spoken to flat earthers online and their arguments don't make any sense. Right. And I've looked at the positive scientific evidence for it. So I believe that the earth is round for multiple reasons, but one of them is because my parents told me to. Right. Now, I do think, though, that Amscombe's criticism is actually not that decisive against the argument because I think it's also can be it can be pressed as well and uh, Victor Reppert does this in his book defending the argument from reason because the way I could look at it is he he gives this example suppose David I I could you ask me what's my position on a divisive issue and I say oh well my position is x and I give you all of these reasons you think and you might think oh wow you're very a reasonable person you gave me all of these these reasons for it but then if I, and you asked me for all these different issues. But then what if I revealed that on position A, B, and C, I first rolled a dice, and, that, and I, that's where I chose my position, and then I gave reasons afterwards. That, that maybe set your criteria for how you were going to assess things. Right. So, so it, which, is the, which is the uh, best series of movies, Justice League or Marvel? I'm going to roll a dice to decide which of these yeah. sets of criteria I'm going to decide are going to be the deciding factors. So bef- yeah, and so then apply those to each of the sets of movies. Right. So just for people to understand Reppert's criticism here, that's to say, okay, even if I gave you all these reasons for why DC movies are better or why Marvel movies are better, and you thought, oh, he's a reasonable person. But then if you later found out, I just picked them based on how I rolled a die, which is purely by chance, you'd want to withdraw saying that I'm reasonable because the main factor in why I believe that is pure is a non-rational factor, the rolling of a die, which would be the same for what Lewis would say is when it comes to our brains – that um, if it's just the same chance occurrences of neurons firing, things like that, then it's, you know, then we, we don't have an explanation there for why we have the ability to reason at all, to rise above the natural interlocking system. Uh, and actually, let's talk a little bit about the variance, because when you move from Lewis, there are different things in the philosophy of mind to take the argument from reason to help, at the very least, to show an atheist or a naturalist were more than just the material. Now, jargon alert for everybody listening, naturalism and materialism are not necessarily the same thing. So, and you can opine if you have, have a, I think we're probably on the same page with this. I think so. <laughs> naturalism is a tricky word to describe. It basically seems like a world without God. Yeah, in Miracles, Lewis actually even says that it's, it's, it's a very, very floppy term because a naturalist, when he says talks about nature, just means everything that there is. But he's assuming that there is no such thing as supernatural. Right. And that's <laughs> what makes it hard. I think the best description would be naturalism is the view 
that at the basement of reality, it's physical. Yeah. Now, different naturalists, now some naturalists will say it's only physical. And some of them, the most extreme would be eliminative materialists. These are people like Paul and Patricia Churchill and their philosophers of mind who say that our belief, like the idea that I believe something or I think of something, that doesn't exist actually. That's an illusion. Because if you were to, because if something exists, you can put a spatial coordinate to it. You can have a physical fact about it. There's nothing like that for our mental states but whatsoever. There, but there are naturalists, I didn't know this until fairly recently, like, I think they're called broad naturalists, mm -hmm. who believe that there can be emergent properties yes. that are non-physical. Right. So, for example... So they have no problem, really, with what Lewis says here. <laughs> right. And so some of them would say, okay, I'll agree with Lewis. So it would be more the stricter materialist. So these people would try to say that water molecules are not wet, but you get enough of them together, you have wetness. So when it comes to mind, you might say, well, synapses lack reason, but somehow if you get enough of them together, you can get reason. And that would get into more of a debate if reason can really be an emergent property in the same way that like wetness might be. The question of if we threw enough circuit boards at Clippy in Microsoft Word, will he actually become alive and intelligent? I hope not. The answer to that is, of course. I not. hope. He, he might be alive, but he will never be intelligent. <laughs> By his very nature, he can't be. It looked like you were writing a letter. You just wanted to help. <laughs> you want some help here? No. Uh, go to my Free For All Friday on Corporate Mascots to, to hear more. Uh, so there are different ways of taking the modern argument. One that I find interesting is, the pro is when you look at atheists who will admit their worldviews have significant problems. Alex Rosenberg in The Atheist Guide to Reality famously said that our minds or our brains cannot be about anything. He says no more than a table can be about something. He just thinks it's it's an illusion. And this is hard because we all might we because we talk about this. This goes back to Lewis and the window pane in the garden. It's just secondhand to us. I'm talking to you about my trip to Europe or Israel three years ago. But aboutness, I would say, well, what is aboutness? It's kind of like asking somebody what time is, not what time it is, but what is time? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you just get this kind of blank <laughs> stare to say, okay, well, what is aboutness? Like, okay, I have, I'm having a thought about Antarctica. I've got that, that bright blue glacier sitting in the water. It's freezing cold. I'm having a thought about Antarctica, and that's a property of that thought. But, okay, and it's in my head somewhere. Everybody seems to agree you know, we, even whether you're Christian, atheist, whatever, it's in my head. It, my brain is is an important part of my thinking. If we put your head in a CAT scan, we would see very particular things light up that relate to that. We Absolutely. Would, we would see some physical response to it. But then we'd have to zoom in and we would zoom in closer and see the that one neuron, that one synapse. All right, where's Antarctica? <laughs> there is no blue glacier. There is no cold there. There... It's how is it that these molecules they have Antarctica? It doesn't conform in that way, and also neither though it's not a convention, because for example, you take a stop sign, you know, it's a red octagon, like you know, um, and it, and it says stop on it. And in California, you only have to slow down a little bit as you pass the rolling it. stop, right? Uh, we all agree by convention that means stop, but in ten in a, two thousand years, we could change our language. And we would just know it's a cute little relic from the past, and it would have no meaning to us. Like, so we can see that that stop sign is about stopping because we all agree on it. 
But that doesn't explain my neuron in my brain because that is not, de- it's being about Antarctica is not dependent on you and me agreeing that it is. No. It objectively is. But why? So that points us more in the direction that there is something, we are more than matter. We're, we are more than part of a closed interlocking system. And that points us to something beyond that. And, and I, Lewis should get credit for getting a lot of people to think in that direction. As we said right at the, at the beginning, this gets you back to your presuppositions and to not look past them quite so quickly. Very good. Uh, when it comes then to when you let's um, to close ourselves out here to talk a little bit about Lewis as philosopher, uh, I think that you'd be honest, I feel like it's sometimes the way people talk about Peter Kraft because Peter Kraft is kind of RCS Lewis. He really is. I'll, I'll take that. I've even heard people say that people say that Peter Kraft is our generation C.S. Lewis. No, no, no. C.S. Lewis was their generation's Peter Kraft. Right. <laughs> I like it. That people will say, and I've seen criticisms. It's interesting, the criticisms of Lewis. I've seen these criticisms of Peter Kraft online, that many people, regular people, love Peter Kraft and C.S. Lewis. And then you read the philosophers. <laughs> and they're not a serious thinker. They're not... Uh, you know they're they're not playing by the rules of the other philosophers when they're putting forward these ideas because they're not submitting things to peer-reviewed journals and have everything written out in symbolic logic and uh, Which is and, funny, and, and their writing is understandable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the cardinal sin in academia. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, is that it's it stressed up a little bit because it has to be. But uh, yeah, the, the, the people that want serious philosophy are actually really committing the ad hominem fallacy. They're spending all their time complaining about the man rather than pointing out where his arguments fail. Right. And I, I think to address their criticisms, number one, it's not fair to say if someone is speaking to a popular audience to say, oh, you're not, you're not talking to us, the philosophers. Well, he wasn't. I'm not talking to you. Uh, and... To see in the different areas, like, for example, Peter Kraft, he has a wonderful textbook, Socratic Logic, that's not meant for the average guy on the street in a bookstore. It's meant for a college student. You know, so the and, and Lewis has other, would you say that Lewis has a range of writings, like Miracles would be one that Lewis would say is not probably for the common layman. No, not at all. It, you, when you start reading Miracles and you read, and you've just come from mere Christianity, you notice he's changed gears a little bit. Yeah. There aren't quite so many neat little analogies. He's trying to define himself a little bit more, trying to deal with deeper topics. And that is that is Lewis all over. He, this is why he wrote in all of these different genres. And he wrote to different audiences and wrote accordingly for that audience. Right. And when you go through and when you read it, you, you can take an appreciation of that to know that he may not be a professional philosopher in the sense of being a philosophy professor, but he, he did teach philosophy mm-hmm. and he was a part of the Socratic club, the Socratic society. And this objection, I think also, oh, he's not a real philosopher. This, this now Kraft, you know, he does actually have a PhD in this. He teaches it. I think some people can feel this way about Lewis and others as if you, to be, a, or even today, people will say you're not a real, like today to be a philosopher means you have to have a PhD you teach somewhere. But throughout most of human history, the most famous philosophers in history would not have met that test. I was going to say, Plato, Socrates, they, they can't be philosophers. Socrates was a drifter, <laughs> basically. He went around bugging people. St. Justin Martyr had a cloak. That was it. Yeah, he had the philosopher's cloak. That's right. And so going, th- even people like, like David Hume and others, these are people who managed to snag a patron 
and could write about things. But the question is, judge them by their works and what they provoke others, even if they don't necessarily uh, put forward a fully comprehensive thought to something, their role may be to put forward something very interesting that others are going to build upon. And I think that's true with a lot of Lewis's writing. And just to think about, if you think about most of the arguments for the existence of God, they can get very technical very, very quickly. That's right. But you can also just boil it down to a, a, a simpler thought that you can just recognize. So the arguments from design, you could just say, well, I look at the world, it looks designed. Right, and then you go deeper than that. You can go deeper than that. Likewise, I feel like there's such a thing as right and wrong, and that only really makes sense to me if there's a God. Again, you can unpack this um, in a more detailed fashion. You can submit all of the peer-reviewed papers that you would like. Right. But first and foremost, just to communicate an, a, a, an essential insight or an idea that you have. Mm -hmm. Let's talk now about some resources for this argument, people who want to learn more. If you want to learn more about the argument from reason, a good author on this is Victor Reppert, and mm -hmm. he has a good book called, uh, I think it's called... C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. <laughs> and it talks about the argument from reason, the involvement, the interaction with Anscombe. Uh, Alvin Plantinga has worked on this, The Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism. I'm trying. Oh, there is a book by I believe it's Michael Agros called "The Immortal in You," and so I think that is another one that I would that I would put out there. If you because we talk about philosophy of mind, it's it's so weird. You might think like, what's harder, talk about cosmology or philosophy of mind? <laughs> but like, it's weird. Our brains are you know it's right next to us. You, you think about black holes or the Big Bang. It's so hard because it's way far away. Brain is right here. But when we try to talk about how it works, it gets really confusing. Also, I think the data is richer. It's like the difference between, say, the Kalam cosmological argument and the argument for morality. I have way more data about morality because I am a moral person. I'm a moral agent living in the world, and, I, and I've interacted with my conscience. So that I have way more data that I can just get overwhelmed at when I'm trying to work out what's going on inside me. And this actually ties in very nicely with something that, that Lewis talked about, that there are two different ways of seeing things. You can either laugh to joke or think about why it's funny. Right. And you, you don't really do this, the two things at once. Right, exactly. Well, great. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us today. What are, uh, can you tell us more about your podcast and where people can find your work? Sure thing. I am a co-host on Pints with Jack with two other guys. We go through the works of C.S. Lewis, chapter by chapter. We've so far done Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Till We Have Faces, and we are just wrapping up The Screwtape Letters. All righty. We'll definitely check out Pints with Jack and then... Uh, I, I would like to join you on a pints with Jack in the future in studying this argument. Well, I'll give you, I'll give the listeners a heads up what I'd like to talk about. I would like to talk with you about C.S. Lewis's uh, fiercest critic. Uh, does, does his fiercest critic also have a British accent? I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, because he's not me. There's actually, an, uh, well, uh, there was a, an author who wrote, uh, the only author I know of who wrote a full book-length critique of Lewis, I don't know if you've ever if you've ever had a chance to partake of it or not, but no, um, I read it. oh, it's uh, it's fascinating. So maybe the next time on Pints the Jack, we'll talk about uh, the philosopher who's come after Lewis and 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 my thoughts on him. I think that would be fun. But thank you though for for being on Council of Trent again. It's wonderful to be back. It's yeah. good to have you back in California for a while for just a little bit. It has <laughs> been fun. And thank you guys for listening. Definitely go to TrenthornPodcast.com to check out more of what we have there. If you like today's episode, become a premium subscriber at our Patreon page and get access to member-only content. For more information, visit TrenthornPodcast.com.
And I hope you all enjoyed that. And join us again next week when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers.